Hey everybody, it's Ed Percussion Podcast. You were just listening to intro music by one of our intro winners. Look in the description to see who the winner was. We're going to do another intro music contest soon. Um, thanks again to all the intro composers who sent in their submissions. Um, yeah, like I said, we're going to do that again here in the next little bit. But um, I'm Casey Cangelosi. It's March 28th uh, that we're recording on. And it's episode 279. Uh, with me, as usual, we've got Carly Vigna. How's it going, Carly? Hey, Casey. Good, good. How are you doing? Just fine, thanks. Also, Ksenia Kamyanovich is here. Hey, Ksenia. Hello, people. What's up? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Ben Charles is here. Hey, Ben. Hey, Casey. How are you? Good, good, good. Hey, before I introduce the very well-known, very awesome guest, Ben, what happened on release date? And when is release date? Release date for this episode is April 8th. And so I had a few things. Uh, there's especially two TV moments I wanted to mention. But uh, the first one is in 1963, John and Cynthia Lennon had their first son, Julian. Uh, and Julian was often shortened to Jules. And Paul McCartney would sing to a young Julian Lennon. And he sang him a song called Hey Jules which he changed before the release to Hey Jude. So that's where that song name comes from. In 1968, there was a TV special called Pachula. It was a Pachula Clark special that aired on NBC. At one point when she's singing, Pachula Clark grabs Harry Belafonte's arm. uh, And that's the first time when a white woman and a black man ever had physical contact in that uh, context on TV. Uh, The big headline event that I actually wanted to talk about today uh, in 1994, Kurt Cobain was found dead after a self-inflicted gunshot wound, apparently three days prior. And I started actually researching that and it was just really sad and I didn't want to talk about that to start the episode. Uh, so I said, decided instead I would talk about in 2000, the very famous More Cowbell sketch made its debut on SNL. Yes. So if you're unfamiliar with this sketch, it's uh, Chris, uh, Will Ferrell plays the cowbell player in Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, And Christopher Walken is the record producer and uh, Farrell keeps on being more and more dramatic with the cowbell and and Walken keeps on egging him on with uh, I've got a fever and the only prescription is more cowbell is the famous line from that song. Uh, So the backstory with this is Will Farrell said he had listened to this song for years and heard the cowbell way in the back of the mix and just wondered what the performer was like. The sketch was react, rejected actually seven over seven times before it made the show. Um, and it was a, an instant smash hit, huge, huge hit. Uh, the It's also famous because the cast is breaking constantly in it because it's so funny. And one of the things they said that made the cast break was that Will Ferrell's shirt was much tighter than the ones used in rehearsal and it keeps on riding up on his stomach. <laughs> Uh, and so I found some some interesting info about this that someone did a comparison to reality and so a few notes about the uh, the fake version from the show versus reality Chris Parnell plays Eric the singer of the band and Eric Bloom was indeed the lead singer of the band but Donald Roser actually performed the lead vocals on this song the drummer portrayed in the sketch is Bobby Rondinelli but Albert Bouchard was actually the drummer at the time Gene Frankel is a fictional character in the sketch, and fans have occasionally expressed their sympathies to Blue Oyster Cult 
over his death, which obviously didn't occur. And Walken plays the Bruce Dickinson, as he says in the episode, the producer. But David Lucas was actually the producer of the song. And the backstory here is that SNL sent an intern to purchase the album to get the, I guess, the liner notes on it. And he bought a greatest hits compilation that listed Bruce Dickinson as the reissue producer. He was actually a mid-level manager at Columbia Records, not the actual producer of this song. And there was a woman that worked in the art department at SNL, and she was the daughter of a man who had worked on the album and she reportedly said that the cowbell player on the album was actually not unlike the cowbell player that Will Ferrell portrayed. <laughs> uh, the band liked the sketch, the, the actual uh, Blue Oyster Cult said they liked the sketch. Will Ferrell has reprised the character a couple of times, including on SNL. He joined Queens of the Stone Age and Green Day to perform on stage. The Green Day performance was unrehearsed, uh, so it was a surprise to the band he, when he came out on stage, which seems like a Bold mood, excuse me, bold move on the producer's part, but it it worked and Green Day liked it. Uh, and then there was this incident where uh, Will Ferrell and Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers famously appeared on Jimmy Fallon for a drum off, kind of playing up their, their resemblance to each other. And it ends with Will Ferrell playing a, a cowbell and winning the drum off. And uh, then this is one of my favorite things I found out, the Lord of the, excuse me, Lord of the Rings online MMORPG has an item in the game called the <laughs> no Moore Cowbell. That's M-O-O-R Cowbell as an item in the game. So no that's our, our history for today, April 8th. Wow. I think you guys, come on. It's a really... You know, the Fine, thing is, I should have actually had a cowbell and like had more cowbell in my... <laughs> My notes. I could have done a sound yeah. gag. Like, what's we'll put sound? it in post. Yeah. Yeah, we'll put it in post. That's funny. I was always surprised. By the way, that skit's still funny to me. I don't think a lot. Yeah, of it's it's definitely it's always on like top five, top ten lists of SNL sketches. Yeah. I like still enjoy it. I still think it's way funny. And um, yeah, I don't know a lot of especially um, comedy skits, the com comedic movies, like they don't age all that well. You know, it's like there's they're, they're so topical and they're so current and it's like i don't know then you move on and sometimes the 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 jokes are dismissed but that one's like yeah maintained really really funny um do you guys know who bruce dickinson is aside from like producer no i was always surprised like why why would like because they pitch it like bruce dickinson the legendary producer like well first of all who, well how many common folks pay attention to who producers are but he's the singer for iron maiden I read that now that you mentioned it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was wondering, like, wow, they're paying so much attention to, like, the name Bruce Dickinson. It's like, is anybody going to – how many people are going to get that? I mean, of course, Iron Maiden fans. And there are a lot of Iron Maiden fans. Iron Maiden's, like, a huge – Yeah, the uh, the other funny line from, from Christopher Walken in that sketch, other than the I've got a fever line, is the uh, – what does he say? Something like – you know, I wake up, or I, I'm just a normal person. I, I do everything else, ever, you know, but in the morning when I wake up, I put my pants on and I make gold records. <laughs> what is that? No, he says, I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like everyone else, except for when I do, I make gold records. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> no, they portray him like really, really cocky, and it's it's so funny. I don't think Bruce Dickinson is, is that way. Do you know Bruce Dickinson is a pilot, and he flies Iron Maiden around? That's how they tour. Like, he is the pilot. And that's it, folks. That's the end of our show. And uh -huh. that's it. Yep. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Let's move along. Thank you, Adam, for joining us. We'll see you guys on the next episode. <laughs> is that my introduce to? Is that my? Is that my cue to introduce Adam? I think it is.
I think it is. Hey, it's uh, Adam Tans here with us, y'all. He has performed all over the world. He's performed in the U.S. He's coming to us from Australia. He's performed in Hong Kong, Japan, Malaysia, Taiwan. And he's done the uh, Percussive Arts Society National Convention. He is an uh, Australian composer and marimbist and percussionist and uh, content creator, the very famous and well-known percussion, probably the most watched percussion channel, I, th I think, I, I imagine, I sure would think so, called The Studio, and it's fantastic. And, um, yep, we just, we just love the dude to death. So, hey, Adam, how's it going? What do you think of that more cowbell? Hey, I, I, I love it. <laughs> I love, I've watched it so many times, actually. Um, but, but it's really good to be here. I've always watched, um, I've always been a fan of what you guys do on at, at Percussion since very early. And actually, Casey was one of the first people that I watched on YouTube with that um, cool. white knuckle stroll dot AVI. Um, <laughs> that was one of the, <laughs> the AVI, one of the classic uh, 12 years ago videos. And it was, it was just beautiful. That's the, the pixely, um, 240p-ness of it, the rawness of it. Um, and it really inspired me to like, it, it was actually, yeah, Casey was one of the people who inspired me to get into YouTube. So I have to thank you for that. Um, and I actually got to meet you finally, I think like two years later in 2017. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Oh, but thanks cool. for having I, me on here. Yeah. Man, thanks a lot, Adam. I didn't, I didn't know all that. Yeah. That's, really, that's really cool to know. And we did, um, <laughs> just speaking of like your reach and how well you do the social media thing and how well the studio does. Yeah, at that PASIC, um, 2017, did you say? Yeah, 2017. Yeah, I think that's when we did the panel, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, well, yeah. Adam did this. You put together this awesome impromptu panel that, uh, I mean, you have, to, you have to tell me how you did that. I mean, you just reserved a room and advertised on social media. Like, it was totally off the grid as far as, like, the PASIC schedule and everything. It was, was, it was actually out. so backdoor. Yeah, and it was, like, I think it was Rob Nopper and I who came up with the idea at first. We were like, let's just get a panel of people who make stuff online and see what happens. And then we just got a panel of people, including including you. And um, and it was, yeah, people just came into the room. And it was so hot in the. I still remember it was, like, no air conditioning. And it was so sweaty. Um, but we had we had a lot of interesting conversations, and that sort of thing had never happened before at Basic. I remember like talking about online stuff, um, so that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for doing that. It was really cool, and I remember. Yeah, thanks ben. for joining, dude. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, sure. Well, I remember Ben being in there to come watch us and be a, being a supportive pal, and uh, he was like standing yeah. on somebody's <laughs> head. It was really, yeah. really Ben trying to cram into that room. <laughs> 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 Well, um, you, you know, I, th I think a question we have from our buddy Josh Jones goes right along with the social media stuff. And I, I imagine we'll have a lot of questions about your channel. But he says, Adam, um, let's see. Thank you for being you. What surprised you the most getting started with your channel? Um, that's a that's an interesting question. I, of course, I want to give a shout out to Josh as well. He's just an awesome, awesome person. He does awesome work um, both on and offline. Um, but yeah, when I started my YouTube channel, I guess I was surprised with the fact that people actually wanted to see a percussion YouTube channel because, you know, like percussion is, is a pretty, you know, it's, it's already off the grid when it comes to classical music. But when we talk about YouTube and percussion, it's like, what? Like, is there really anything to talk about? Um, so, yeah, I was just thinking like um, when I first made my first videos about marimba and reviewing like products and stuff, and then people started saying, oh, we really want to watch a Marimba channel, blah, blah, blah. Um, that was a real surprise to me because 
everyone in Perth didn't really talk about marimba that much. Everyone in Australia was kind of like, marimba, that's not a real percussion instrument. You know, you got to play snare drum, you got to audition with Adele Clues and uh, Shahrazad, and that's that's real percussion music. Um, so it was really nice to see that people embrace this culture. And then when I realized you could create a community out of this kind of thing uh, with just people who wanted to get to know other people around the world, then it made total sense to make a channel. So, yeah. Your, your, um, your skill in the editing room just blows me away. And did you, you know, I haven't, um, I, I haven't looked all the way back to the beginning and compared it to current, like your current, I, I, I guess, yeah. the editing model. Had, had you like from the beginning put all that dedication and quality into the videos or was there kind of a, a learning curve and a development? Um, I guess it was because before I made the studio channel, I actually had like a vlog channel. And before that, I made um, really lame covers of music as most people circa 2008 did. Um, but I, I had already done editing for at least 12 years up to that point, at least. Like it was just like, because I edited it since, like, in primary school, I used Sony Vegas 5. Right now, I think it's 18 <laughs> or 19. I used 5, Sony Vegas 5 Pro. I taught myself... Um, Adobe Photoshop CS1. <laughs> I think now it's like CC something, something, something. Um, just really long period of time of just trying things and experimenting. Back when YouTube was not really a thing and getting used to things like jump cutting and you know, like shot pacing and things like that. So when I went into the studio channel, I'd already like knew how to use cameras and stuff. I was an event photographer at the time uh, and I, I did like wedding videography and things like that. So I was used to using, I, I self-taught everything self-taught. And I was like, oh, well, I can try and see if I can use these skills for this percussion thing. Because as far as I could tell, nobody was doing it for percussion and giving it that sort of new element of you know, instant flavor, <laughs> you know, like videos just shoving things in your face um, really, really works well. So yeah, that's where it came from, I guess. Wow, cool. Good to know. Did not know that. Ben, I think you've got yeah. something. Yo, know, I had a question in, in the sort of uh, intro to the social media panel at PSIC. Casey mentioned Rob Knopper. Yeah. And like, it just occurred to me, I always forget that I, you're, you edit Rob's videos, right? Uh, I used to, okay, no, okay. not anymore. Yeah, okay, yeah. gotcha. How did, how did you, how did you end up getting connected with him? Because I don't know of any Australia connection that Rob has. Yeah, it was interesting because Rob was, again, another one of the ones who was making YouTube videos at the time, but he was quite low key. Um, but I really liked his his way of talking and things like that. He was very much one of those people who comes down to the students level and speaks on an equal footing, which I think is, to be honest, kind of rare in like a lot of classical music industries. So I was really respecting that. And I commented on one of his videos. I said, oh, Rob, I really love your work. And then he said, oh, Adam, I really love your work. And then we kind of just like talked about it. Um, and then I started doing some editing for him because I thought I could like help him improve his content flow and stuff because like the videos he made were quite good, but it's just like the presentation, the delivery was a little bit like a little bit old school. So I was like, we can do some new things. We can change the shot timing. We can make it more like fun for like spontaneous for younger audiences and things. And it worked and his programs are just taking off right now. Very proud of him uh, and very proud of all the work he's done, inspiring young students and giving them courage to audition because uh, auditions are a very scary thing. So yeah, that's how I met him. And then when we met in um, person at that basic panel was actually the first time we met in person. Before that, I hadn't met him at all. And I was like, oh, your black t-shirt looks exactly the same as the camera. Um, and then, like, yeah, just, it was the same like meeting Casey and stuff. Like just everybody meeting people in person for the first time. I think that was like 
my second ever time traveling to the States. The first time I traveled for this thing called Chosen Veil in 2016. And then 2017 was like going to pace to Indianapolis. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of fast food restaurants in this area. <laughs> so yeah, sorry, off topic. But yeah, that's that's how I met Rob. Yeah. Gotcha with you. Yeah, because yeah, the 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 DNA that that I've seen in both is you use this like orchestral hit. I'm assuming that's from Firebird Suite. Uh, whenever yes. someone's on the screen and like I, I just remember watching Rob's videos and then like wait I've seen that somewhere else uh, and you don't I, I shared that, a lot of sounds yeah and you like <laughs> you don't you don't inject yourself like it doesn't cut to Adam Tan or anything like that so it's like wait why have I heard that so it, it yeah it took me a while um, but yeah and like Casey was talking about and you mentioned like the the jump cuts things like that it's like I mean all of us here have edited videos for the podcast and it, like even just like one little thing like that can just take so long. So like obviously you've just mastered it and have the keyboard shortcuts down or whatever that you can just do those so quickly. I suppose it's more just like trial and error, right? Because you don't actually know, like for example, when you cut videos, if you cut like a certain segment of like speech, for example, and you cut it maybe like two frames shorter, it makes like a big difference in the flow and then suddenly it means something completely different. And it's crazy to me how that, that works. And it took me a long time to like, master that so like if you watch my older videos they're very like monotone and then like the cuts are like technically good and they cut at the sentences but it's almost like too abrupt and and it's monotone at the same time so you're kind of like rolling a fridge down a hill like it's very cold but it's going very fast <laughs> um, so yeah i've kind of just refined that as we've gone along and just trying yeah, to like find something that works best one or yeah. two frames can also make the difference in like the, the end of a sentence just sounding a little bit weird or choppy or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. People get like, because like when you go on like Premiere, for example, you use Q and W, right, to cut videos on the head or the tail end of a clip. And if you do the thing where you look at the waveforms and you just cut in sentences, it becomes like, so I really just really good. <laughs> like it's really like abrupt right. and it, it's not human enough. Yeah. Well, and I know when we're editing, we're like taking a guest sentence. If they are leaving pauses, you kind of have to think like, well, wait, is if they're taking a moment to think and then say yeah. something like, it's like, oh, you kind of need, you need the the pause. But yeah, it's, it's kind of, it, it's cool how there's a personality. It's like, like, like uh, Ben was saying, like you can recognize your style in, in Rob's videos that's right it's that kind of like know. musical yeah it's like a musical cadence. sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but yeah. yeah 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 absolutely well and i love that you mentioned and you're saying it here on the show that you 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 taught yourself all these softwares and all this stuff and you had 12 years of experience doing it before you started because i i've just shouted at the top of the hill so many times like students just learn how to use finale learn how to use an us editing software learn how to use a DAW and you sometimes hear that like well I don't have I never took a class on that so I was like no you don't need a <laughs> class they're designed so anyone can learn how to do it you just have to like get in there and do it so I know it's good to see that take your own Microsoft Word class too yeah yeah right like yeah oh, cool I didn't take an email class can I not answer my emails anymore that would be really nice can you I have two that? master's degrees and you never took an email class too? <laughs> yeah. You know, that, you know that email class you take, that bibliography class? It's like an email class, right? I think in Casey's time, there was an email class. Probably he just didn't take it. There might have oh. been. Yeah, you mean because I'm 67 or whatever? Okay, yeah. uh, Ksenia, I think you're next in the chat there. 
Yes. Well, first of all, I wanted to say that uh, while we all are precautionists in this virtual room, <clears throat> not all of us are, are editors, uh, certainly when we stand next to Adam. So I take that Ben's like when we edit this, what we do is not editing. What we do is like little kids playing. So we could we could take a class from Adam about uh, all of this. No. <laughs> yes, definitely. But that's we, we don't take offense. You do this beautifully and we're we're just very rudimentary. Um, but do tell us, how do you choose what you work on, what you're going to work on next? And how do you see um, what impacts the audience most? Because obviously there is there is content so there is the core of the idea that can attract people and then your presentation can also have a huge impact on you know how it resonates with people so how do you choose what you're gonna do next and how has choosing content versus choosing presentation impacted your audience this is, this is a really good question i've been asked this a lot on like seminars and stuff and it's difficult because like people always expect me to be like super organized have like a calendar of release schedules some people are really like good at that kind of thing like you know like bullet journal bullet bullet journaling and like those kinds of like really organized aesthetic things and i'm just not one of those people um i, I do have a whiteboard of random uh, random ideas that i want to do like of video ideas that are organized in terms of um ideas that i personally would like to do and then ideas that i think are popular right now things that relate to current trends uh, i have a reaction system as well like a reaction video thing that that is ongoing through my youtube channel which kind of helps provide some buffer content in between my my more like uh, intensive videos and so it's it's interesting because it's like with youtube you always have the same argument of do you go for do you go for content that is meaningful to you or do you go for clout, as you're saying, right? And the thing is, I've tried to find a balance between the two. Like some videos I'll post, they're more for popular use. And then I personally won't be as invested in them. But if my audience likes them, that's that's more important at the time. And then other videos, like for example, the racism video I just posted, I posted that because it was like something very important to me and I didn't really care about views or whatever. And I just, I just made it. And I think uh, one of the best things about YouTube actually is being able to make that choice of um, choosing your personal style. And as long as I think my personal, my voice is permeating through all of the content, I don't think it's disingenuous to make a video that maybe is more towards the clout side um, because it's still me and it's still what people will sign up for sort of thing. Um, but yeah, if, if, if there's one thing I wish I could do, I wish I could get one of those calendars and be really organized and take Instagram top-down shots of it, you know, I, I really wish I could do that. But every time I start on the whiteboard, right now, this whiteboard, it has mahjong rules on it. It's not even, <laughs> it's not even video content. It's completely unrelated. So yeah, but yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Adam, on a somewhat related note, we have a question from one of our longtime listeners and friends, Jade Hales, and Jade asks, how do you think YouTube has changed the way percussionists approach and learn new repertoire? What are some positives and negatives to this video culture? Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? It's like how, like, like I was saying before with Casey's famous uh, 240p AVI file <laughs> of white knuckles shot. It's just, it's just the best video of all time. I use it in my videos all the time and people just go crazy. They're like, what is, we have never heard of this piece before. I'm like, are you sure you've never heard of this piece before? I've had you've never ask. seen the AVI? Like, I think the video quality is so bad and the camera like moves from the sound on the stage that people have asked, like, is this fake? I know the camera's <laughs> moving. It must be fake. 
you know, like, I, I, I honest to God, like, until Adam said that, like, I've always just thought that was an artistic choice to have this kind of, like, semi-blurry video. <laughs> it's oh, part man. of the aesthetic, yeah. Yeah, well, it's that it's... vintage grain. Oh, yeah, no, it's push record and play, and that's just, yeah. I always, I always try to encourage people, like, hey, like, you don't need everything to start making stuff. Like, start making with what you have. Oh, yeah. You're never going to have like all the gear Adam Tan has all at once. You you might acquire it little by little and eventually have it. But anyway, we need to get back to, to Jade's topic there. Yeah, but it's important that you brought up that gear thing because um, as we're saying with like nowadays with YouTube especially and with the advent of smartphone cameras and things like that, it's like everybody can get involved in making content. And that's one of the best things about um, the percussion repertoire side of like YouTube videos and stuff is that we are seeing a lot of composer performers, for example, a lot of composer performers publishing, self-publishing, using things like Wix, Squarespace, WordPress, whatever to like make online stores. Uh, it's basically, I don't want to give it like a blanket term, but it's kind of like the democratization of percussion music, if that makes sense. It's like people make videos and there's a lot of videos of people playing the music, which makes it easier to understand. And then you get to see you know, which videos are more popular. And that instantly tells you, like it gives you a good snapshot of what the repertoire is like. And that's why we're seeing a lot more uh, younger players play, you know, like the works that are always really highly ranked in search results, things like Eric Samu, things like Robert Utomo. And that's, that's it, it's really good because it not only encourages a culture of doing your own research and finding your own music, but also it encourages a culture of, like Casey was saying, sharing your own music sharing your own performances. And now a lot of younger students are not afraid to share their music. And I think that's how a lot of people who live in, you know, areas where maybe music is not so popular or like percussion schools are not so big, they're able to reach out to so many different people. And I, I see that as an absolute win. Like it's really just, it's really like, for example, my own music gets played so much in all these random countries. And I watch the videos, I watch every single one of them. And it's just crazy to me that you can just do that. You now just film video. And these people know about the music and these people know about the music. Um, and I really encourage any, if, if anyone who's watching or listening is like uh, someone who wants to get into composing, uh, self-composing and self-publishing, just, just start, just start writing something, post it online and let people listen and enjoy your music. And if there's something that you think you can, can work on, then people who are listening to you can also give you feedback and stuff like that. I think that is just, that's so good. <laughs> there's, not, there's nothing bad about that at all. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's yeah. wonderful. That's wonderful. Do you, do you think, can you think of any negatives about the kind of culture, we, the YouTube culture that we have these days? Yeah, there, there's definitely some downsides, like uh, with having this emphasis on, you know, like likes and engagement and things like that. It means that certain styles of music or certain composers maybe get more prioritized than others. And it becomes more of like, a, like, a, like I was saying before, clout, right? It's like popularity. So suddenly popular composers are better, which I don't think is necessarily true. Okay, like I think everybody should have a chance to express and share their music. Um, other things that I think are bad, obviously when you have online platforms, you always have more negativity, of course, because people are not afraid to be negative when they are hidden. So I think one of the things people always worry about is if they post like music that they've written or if they post uh, music they're performing, that they're going to get slammed by people uh, who maybe just like to you know, comment negatively or criticize. And like, I really want to make this point, like just, just so people understand that criticism 
doesn't necessarily on online especially doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing but it can be really good like for my own videos people used to say my shot pacing was bad and i was saying okay well you're not attacking me you're attacking the way i'm making my content but in like a constructive way and i thought okay that's fine but what i mean is like when people refer to someone's appearance or someone's background or like they they just discouraging from the get-go i think that's really not very good um, so that's i think one of the downsides but i think if people can just overcome that initial barrier and just don't be too afraid to just be yourself on the platform and with regards to the popularity th popularity thing if people will just make an effort to like look beyond just numbers i think that will be just fine yeah it's almost got that like video game trash talk that seeps in a that's exactly bit. it it's like yeah. like you ever play halo online i mean oh my god people are Ooh. people are like people are like so mean anyway uh, funny stories ben i think Casey, now that you say that, I, I think I did see, it might have been your white knuckle stroll. Someone was like, this guy wrote this piece but misses half the notes. It's <laughs> like, all right. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, well, Adam, on, on a related note to this, one one thing that we we often hear uh, people say is like, oh, I'm, I'm glad social media wasn't around to, to record my teenage years. Uh, and the idea that like once you put something on the internet, it's out there and you could certainly take down a video or something like that. But I think that this would be even more difficult with a talking center channel versus a playing center channel. Um, and has there been any content that you look back on, not necessarily because you said something terribly racist or something like that, but uh, that you look back on, you're like, why did I say that? Or that was, you know, that was wrong, something like that. Uh, and have you just left it up as a, as a stamp in time or have you put a comment or taken it down or what? Yeah, um, that's that's the interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting that you asked that because like some people obviously like they delete their old videos because it looks bad or whatever. But like I've actually left all my videos since day one. Even my blogs, like my blog channel, um, most of those videos are still there from my university years and stuff. And on the studio channel, like I left the older videos there, even the ones where my playing is quite bad and that the things I say are a bit like weird like they're not they're not problematic or anything but it's just like I didn't know enough about percussion at the time and I would say things like well you can do this and I look at my hand and it looks like it's having a seizure on the table or something it's just it's totally inadequate but what I really like about those old videos is a lot of them there was one that I made called top 10 marimba solos and I originally titled it marimba solos for beginners and then I realized all oh, my beginner repertoire isn't isn't very good. <laughs> it's, it's not actually beginner repertoire. It's actually more difficult. And so people were pointing that out. So I changed the name of the title, but I remember, and I won't name the person, but I remember this very famous Marimba professor and his friend commented this very long paragraph saying that I was uh, terrible at my job, that I was misleading 10,000 people, that I should stop making videos. He's a very, very famous person. Um, and he's actually commented on my videos before as well. I'll go find it. Um, and he went, <laughs> yeah, no, right. it's not hard to Stand find we'll it's not hard to me, find um, seconds i'll get it but, but he really just like yeah i left that there and and like i was saying to that person like look it's it's like it, it maybe maybe they're not beginner pieces but like if you're telling me to like stop making videos and to just like silence myself that's a bit that's a bit unfair right like like when you're thinking about you know everyone has something to contribute to percussion i think even like young students who have just started they may say things that you don't think about and i think it's important to like on everyone's voice. So anyway, the point is I left those videos there because I wanted to leave comments like that there too because I wanted to show that, you know, everybody has to start somewhere. Everybody has to go through like growing pains and you learn things. 
and that's okay. It's okay to be like, like nobody's path is perfect, right? Like nobody's grow, like nobody comes out of uh, into the world being perfect as a kid and just excels at everything. I think that's a very unrealistic standard. So I've kept my videos up there and not ashamed of them at all. Yeah. I really appreciate that you do that. And in general, you know, whenever we look at people online, so whom we don't know and we don't know their path, it is so valuable if they leave stuff from the beginning because you can see that even they suffered through this painful evolution process to get to where they are. And they had that brilliance in the beginning too. It's just that they learned a lot, which is amazing. Um, I'd love to hear more about the Marimba Fest. What are you, what oh. are you doing uh, this year and some other questions later on, but please tell us what's, what's up for, for this version. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Remember Fest in a COVID society is very difficult, right? Because um, we can't fly people in, but we've worked around that. We've got people coming in through Zoom um, from overseas, a really great lineup of, of artists of just like so much to share, like so many different backgrounds to share that I think is so awesome. Um, one thing I've really appreciated about doing this Mermafest thing as someone who I, I don't get paid to do a Mermafest. Um, I'm not, I'm not like working at the university or anything at the moment. I just do it because I think it's something where I can use my platform to like help people in this community over here. And, um, yeah, it's just a really interesting platform. We've, we've changed it to a competition this year because we did one two years ago when there was no COVID, uh, missed those days. Um, and it was, it was basically like we had uh, a whole bunch of people like uh, Lynn Vartan, Wei Chen Lin, Kana Amori, Robert Tombo. They all came over and a lot of international participants came over uh, to Perth for the first time ever. A lot of them were like, we didn't even know this city existed. Um, and it was just a really great time. And we thought we could do it again. And then the pandemic hit. And so in 2021, we were like, okay, maybe we should do a scaled down version because of like budget and because of the situation. So we we're just doing like a competition thing, but we thought it'd still be a good opportunity to have master classes in between the competition. And we invited just a whole bunch of awesome people. We've got uh, Matthew Lau, Anna Amori, we've got Spectrum Ensemble, that's um, Jamie, uh, Jamie Esposito and Stephen Hall. Uh, we've also got, so those guys are all overseas and they're all coming in through Zoom, which is so like our participants will be so lucky to see that. And I'll be really happy to see that as well. Uh, we've got Robert Utomo, we have Kaboom Percussion, we have a whole bunch of guys from Perth as well. It's just a really uh, fun, and we want to make it as inclusive as possible too. Um, so that's why we chose this lineup of a whole bunch of different people. And yeah, I just think it's really good to make events like this, like regardless of whether it makes money or not. I've worked with a few people in the past who have always told me that if you run a Marimba competition, it must make money and it must be um, profitable, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, well, you want to be profitable, get into investment banking, you know, like don't, don't run yeah. percussion events. Like that's not, it doesn't make any not sense at all. It's like saying, yeah, it's like saying like buy a car so you can resell it later for twice the price. Like, no, that's, that's not how it works. So it's good to just do these things. And I really appreciate anybody who runs events like this because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of time out of your own time. But when you see like students growing and when you see people, you know, learning new things that they would have not had normally, I think it's totally worth it. Yeah. When you when you're picking out your guest artists and you're imagining this thing on Zoom and we know, we know most of those people you named maybe maybe actually all of them I think we've we happen to have had on the show at one point or another 
Lynn, Jamie, Stephen, and and Matt Lau. Um, do you think like okay, I imagine Matt Lau doing this, and you kind of pitch the idea like, hey, do you think you could do a, a do a class on this? Whereas Jamie Esposito, do you think they could do this? Do you kind of have that uh, that kind of vision, or do you just kind of say like, hey, I know what you do, I love everything you do, come do what you want on Zoom? Yeah, I think I think they should have the freedom to do what they feel most comfortable. So we've uh, when when we invite them, we just ask them like, uh, would would you like to do something that's like what you what you tend to do most? Like, for example, Matty would it be like contemporary percussion, contemporary vibraphone? Um, with Spectrum, it's like talking about diversity in programming, and I would give them like some ideas, but I'll be like, overall, it's totally up to you because um, our participants will just be happy to hear like a fresh perspective, and. You know, too often in, in a lot of these percussion events, especially in Australia, and I said this in my video that I just uploaded, it's like they they always center around um, one specific clique, uh, one specific uh, niche that is like, for example, orchestral percussion, but it's like all one kind of person, one kind of experience, and they're all, and there's like five of them, they're all talking about the same thing. Even if they're talking about different instruments, it's all just like the same same point of view and i think that's quite unhealthy to encourage that thing so uh, I've, when i've told these people is like just do whatever you would like to do that expresses you like yourself and yeah they seem really happy with that <laughs> have you you know speaking of guest artist invitations have you also like likewise since your youtube channel has grown so much and you've become a household name have you noticed people are reaching out to you to get to to invite you and like we haven't even talked about you as a player and composer yet it's like your studio's oh. channel is so it's so good it's hard not to you know so many questions about that and i don't even think we're through a, a quarter of them as far as the the channel but have you found like just being out there that much and sh showcasing your playing and showcasing your your talent for for creating content has uh yeah helped helped your career as a performer too it definitely has helped uh my my performing and composing obviously it's helped a lot but at the same time i've always been wary and i i found this the most when i first started i was like i don't want to be known as the person who just gets invited because they make youtube videos like i want to also be able to back it up with music because that's the, the core of my whole practice right like if i can't play or compose what's the point like youtube may not last forever uh, online content creation may not last forever but having like a music world maybe is a little bit more healthy so um like when people call me like a percussion influencer or whatever i just i always turn my nose up like nah nah that's just it's very awkward to hear that term because i want to be known as someone who is just um doing the, the part you know like performing composing and teaching people about things to do with musicality so yeah, the content creation does help me get invited to more stuff, um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I, I was supposed to go to a few things in 2020, but of course, cannot fly. Um, but it's it's in any this in a way, it's like it's good to have this idea of if you if you use like a platform like YouTube or Instagram, or whatever. And I've seen a few of my friends and colleagues do this too. Like when they post more and stuff, they get invited to more things. And then suddenly we have a lot more new voices. I think that is really good too. So yeah, I'm definitely grateful for it, but I want to make sure that that's not the only thing that I'm there for. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask a follow-up question about the Marimba Fest. Um, you revisited the, the lineup of, of faculty um, and it is something that's been happening a lot in the percussion community to diversify, to think more about how we program things. Um, can you tell us about that process, the learning, and uh, the wonderful way in which you were really applauded, and how you've how you've revisited the situation. Can you tell us how that goes, and how 
how the rest of us should learn about how to and how not to react to these kinds of comments. Yeah. Um, well, firstly, I want to say I'm not an expert on this kind of thing. Absolutely not. And uh, for anyone who no doesn't know what happened, basically our initial Memberfest lineup, because we didn't think of doing Zoom calls, and I think we just didn't think outside the box, we had a lineup that was mostly white artists and that was like quite bad and when we looked at the lineup we were like this is not really inviting for people um, and it's not really reflective of the culture and music at all and so people they, they commented on that and they sent us messages and a lot of people thought that we were getting cancelled actually i didn't think we were getting cancelled i think they were just giving us feedback and so we took all, all the feedback down uh, from a lot of wonderful people and eventually we just decided to start making some changes so we took the original poster down we posted this thing saying we're going to change we're going to invite more people and we're going to do it in a way that is not like oh you are the token diversity person because that that's also very disingenuous so we reached out to a whole bunch of people not just the people you see in the lineup and some people understandably they weren't so comfortable with it because they thought oh it makes it look like i'm being used for you know how i look or whatever and i said that's totally fine totally respect your choice um but we made sure to to make it known to all of the people that we invited that we're not doing this just because of you know your, your background or anything but it was because we really wanted to show our students our participants and we wanted to show people who organize events too that you can do stuff like this and you can work together and you make a real tangible change and suddenly people feel more invited suddenly people feel more inclusive and this is something that i talked about a lot in my video again which was like even though because um, some people were saying this to me, what's wrong with having an all white lineup? You know, they're all really nice people. And I'll admit, like even some of my close friends used to think stuff like that too, because in Australia, everyone is, you know, it's, it's a predominantly white percussion um, society. And I would say that, well, if you are someone who's not white, who's studying percussion, and then you look at the people on these rosters, and then you think, can you say to yourself with a straight face, can you say, I'm going to be like that one day, I'm going to be you know, up there on, on a lineup like that, I'm going to work at a university. It's difficult, right? Like, sure, you can still, it can still happen, but it's just difficult to, to, to be able to say that, right? So that was something that resonated with me. And it was, it was said to me a lot of times in those messages. And I really appreciated that because it was, it was really just like, we have to fix this. And I'm hopeful that if other organizations, which they have, um, I think after we had our, our thing, I think a few other festivals got called out and they didn't react so positively. Um, so I'm hoping that when people get called out on this kind of stuff, they just understand that, you know, people make mistakes. Um, and, you know, when Spectrum and I did our video, we talked about this a lot. It's like everybody makes mistakes, even, you know, minorities and stuff, we make mistakes too. Like sometimes you say something wrong and you don't realize it comes across that way. That it doesn't matter, right? Like you just have to be mindful of these things. So I'm really glad we went through that. It's a great learning experience uh, for everyone involved and yeah. Adam, I wanted to say um, thank you for your honesty and sharing your experiences in your recent video that you mentioned um, up on your page yeah. on racism in the percussion and marimba world. Um, you all listeners should check this out if you haven't already. Um, but I do want to ask you while we're talking about this, Adam, is there kind of one big takeaway that you hope listeners get from all these, all of these conversations that are happening that will just help us all move forward in the right direction together? Yeah, um, I don't think the thing is like, I don't think it needs to be really complicated. I think sometimes people think that, you know, caring about issues like, you know, BIPRC representation, LGBTQIA plus representation has to be really academic, really 
really deep. You have to read very long articles and you have to be versed in all this like really technical knowledge. But really the first step of just being, you know, supportive and just being caring and, res and just respecting other people and understanding privilege. I think that's just a really important thing. Like one of the biggest, uh, I would say rebuttals of my video from a lot of people, and I'm not going to assume whether they're white people or not, but they would say things like, oh, you're obviously attacking white people by making this video. Oh, you're obviously um, making this because you want you you want to be given a handout. Um, the, the white people have done nothing wrong, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, well, it's not, it's not that we want to attack. I don't think anybody's attacking white people. I think it's more just like, because of the systems, right? Like, you know, white people in these systems, they get favored more. And so you just want to be treated on the same level with them. I think you just want a fair go. And I think once people understand that, that the person who is, is like the minority or whatever, it just wants to be on the same level, then it just makes things a lot easier. Then you don't, then you have to say like, oh, they're attacking me. No one's attacking you. It's, it's just, we want to be treated fairly. And I think if everybody yeah, aims for that, it's, it's going to be much better. Yeah, that's huge. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I was going to ask, you know, Adam, you mentioned um, a few minutes ago uh, just advice on beginning composing. And yeah, your pieces are getting out there. They're getting around a whole lot. And I actually bought your duo just the other day. And Thanks for doing that. <laughs> yeah, sure. You betcha. You betcha. Um, but, um, you know, your advice is uh, very similar to my advice. Like, hey, just start composing. Like, just start. And I'm just imagining a student going like, okay, start composing pencil or pen goes to paper and like nothing happens. And they're like, mm. okay, wait, I'm trying to start. What do I do? You know what I mean? Like, do you have any, do you have any advice as far as like, all right, my, my pencil's on the paper. Why, why isn't music happening? Like, what do I do? I'm starting. Yeah. It's like, I think people like, it's like everything else, right? Like the hardest thing is always starting first. And one of the things I've always encouraged is that uh, you treat writing music like a multi-step process. It's not something that just happens in one step. Like, here's the pencil. Woo! Okay, it's finished. I got a new concerto written in 20 minutes. No, like it's better to just, like, for example, one way that I like to encourage writing is to write short motifs. Just start with, you know, things that you like to hear on a marimba or a piano or whatever. You just play a few notes. You sort do, 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 do. And it's like, oh, I really like that. And then you save it. You like write it on a piece of paper or you put it in a voice memo or something. I think a few other composers like Ivan Trevino and stuff, they do stuff like this. And when you feel ready to try again, you take these ideas and you try and see if they'll join together. And some of them will, some of them won't. And again, this is something that I think a few of you guys mentioned before. Um, we always don't see the development process of other composers. We don't see that maybe they fail as well, right? Like for me personally, I've thrown out at least 140, 150 ideas. Like I've thrown out so many scores because they're just garbage. Like they just, they just don't make it past like the first 10 bars or whatever. And I think we have this, maybe the standard of everybody must get it right the first time with composition. Like, no, oh, no, because you, you, it takes time to find your voice and it takes time to, to see what you like. So yeah, just starting in small chunks, like just a couple of notes here and there. And then you think, oh, this tonality sounds great. This texture sounds really nice. I'll put it like this. And then before you know it, you'll have like a phrase. And then maybe that phrase becomes two phrases, four phrases, and then you have a short piece. And then you try it out. And then maybe it sounds horrible. Maybe it sounds like someone put a can of Coke inside your exhaust. And it's like, oh, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. But at least you tried something and you know that doesn't work. So when you maybe take those ideas out, then you put them into another piece and you won't make that same mistake again. And Wait, then before you know, you have an actual piece in your exhaust pipe. Yeah, so it goes like, 
<laughs> is that like an Australian thing? I've never seen this. I've never heard of this. It, it I, may I possibly. I know every prank on the planet, and I don't know about this one. No, it may possibly just be a new music installation. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of tailpipe do you have? A can wouldn't fit yeah. in my tailpipe. You have a big truck. Um, I will say that I have quad exhaust tips on my car. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Sorry, you were saying it's, something uh, important. <laughs> that was pretty important too. But um, I'm just saying, yeah, like more or less, it's like you just have a go in short, small bursts, and don't be afraid of just a few notes at a time. Some of the best. Oh yeah, some of the best pieces are like not loaded with notes. I think in a marimba music, especially, we're really used to seeing like like lots and lots of notes, and it's like, well, that's great and all, but like sometimes the pieces that I love to play are just really simple, and they just they sort of bring out the instrument. And yeah, there's a time and place for both, so don't be afraid if yours doesn't fall into one category or the other. Who cares? <laughs> No, it's not an attack on Casey. It is. It is. <laughs> start writing something that's not. Not complicated. complicated. Well, like, yeah, it's interesting. Like, our, our, a lot of our really, really great pieces that uh, uh, they're so simple, you know. I mean, they're simple, but not, you know. It's like a simple idea. And um, something I, I really like how this described, like, speaking of throwing ideas away, my colleague Eric Ganovan, composer, percussionist, and he's been on the show before, he talked about his process. He gives ideas kind of a, like, a rigorous, he tries each one of them out. So if you have, you know, three little motives, let's say, and you list them on the page, and then you think of, okay, how many variations and retrogrades and inversions can I make of motive one? Okay, now how many can I make of motive two? How many can I make of motive mm. three? And then after you've tried them all out in like several different scenarios, then you like, you start to pick like which one. And of course, in that process, you end up throwing away a lot more, uh, a lot more than you make. Yeah, you know, well, we're talking about the compositional process. Um, I just started reading a book that I highly recommend. I'm enjoying it a lot so far, and I'll probably talk about it more later on when I get farther into it. It's called Staying Composed by composer Dale Trumbor. I went to school with her um, at University of Maryland and saw she wrote a book and I was like, I can't wait to check it out. And it's it's on like overcoming anxiety and self self-doubt within a creative life. So she's relating so much of this to composing but also you know if you have any kind of anxiety or self-doubt like we all do at certain points as performers or any other part of of our creative selves um, i think it's going to be a great read so staying composed by dale trumbor yeah cool thanks carly welcome um so adam tell us how the hell did you get gary burton to chat with you that was so amazing. Yeah, what's his email? Yeah, send Ben. Yeah, his what's email. his email? Because yeah. Ben here, that's his life's goal. <laughs> yeah, put his email it's in funny. the chat. A few people asked me to put his email up, and I was, and, and I remember Gary specifically being like, no. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Gary actually commented on one of my videos. It was um, Student versus Professional Libertango. So I was comparing two versions of Fumida Ninoya's version of Libertango on Marimba. And Gary was basically saying, oh, it was great. Like, it's, um, it's great to see Libertango like this. And he was recounting his stories with um, Gadola and stuff like that. And he just emailed me this long email saying all these things. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Um, and I'd love to have you on the show and all that stuff. And he was very happy about it because he's, he was stuck in, um, I think he was stuck in Florida at the time during like the peak of the pandemic. Um, so, and he was just a really lovely person to talk to. And I really, I really appreciated being able to hear from him and hosting that video. And it was just um, one of the funniest things was I was actually interviewing him on this computer and then the computer went black 
halfway through and I was like, wow, you got to be kidding me. Like of all the people for the computer to die on, it's Gary Burton. Um, but yeah, just lovely person. And he is really encouraging of young students. I showed him a lot of the comments. Um, if you've seen the video, you'll see that there's a lot of comments from the viewers and stuff. And he just laughs a lot. He's <laughs> just a really fun person to be with. So yeah. And then he, oh yeah, he very sent, very kindly sent me a copy of his signed biography and also his mallets that he used with Makoto Ozone, which was just like, it's such a good, thank you, Gary. It's so it's awesome. Good album. Is there more Amazing. than one album with him and Makoto Ozone? I'm pretty sure there is. There the is one that I wanted, the, the one that times like these um, is on it. Anyway, yeah. Look, how he was talking a lot was. about the. <laughs> it'll happen, right Ben. It'll, it'll like, happen. I was just, I was looking to see if there was more than book. one album. You didn't yeah. know there was. You didn't know there was a signed book, also. It's all right. Great we'll book. get there. I can see it. You're mad. I don't just, know. We might no, no, no. get there. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about Gary Burton. So I, I lived in South Florida. Like he lives, I think, in Fort Lauderdale. I lived very close to him in Boca Raton. And all I wanted, I just wanted to meet him and like have lunch. And like his, he has no like, you know, contact me thing anywhere online. He's not on Facebook or anything like that. And so the the closest I, I could get was I sent his manager a letter like, hi, Mr. Burton, I'm a professional percussionist. And like, of course, like the manager probably just threw it away, but I tried so hard. So, but I'm glad that you were able to connect because younger audiences need to need to know who he is. Yeah, and I was glad that he was really open to talking. Ben, you didn't just find where he lives and like peek in his window at night. So you just gotta stalk. You just gotta stalk. Hi, Mr. Better. Burton. <laughs> Google Maps is your best friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think you tried hard enough, Ben. Oh, I, I that's how I met Carly, though. <laughs> well, Adam, we had one more Facebook question from Marcus Hawkins. He says, "How do you think modern music, in terms of compression, quantizing, and timbre choices?" affect players interpretation of concert solo and chamber literature that is yeah it's a very <laughs> specific question <laughs> but also it makes it makes sense i guess um because uh maybe i won't be able to answer this directly but something similar to it is that what i've noticed with um especially with my discord channel which by the way you guys should totally join adamtampercussion.com forward slash discord um so <laughs> i've noticed that people are really getting into talking about uh, electronic percussion like mallet station vsts and stuff like that and that's really become a lot more popular with um with youtube and stuff and people starting to integrate it into acoustic performances i think that is really cool because the first time i tried a mallet station in japan at the japan percussion center one of the greatest stores in the world i was like wow this thing is so hard to play <laughs> it's like, doo, 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 doo. Um, but it was interesting to know that like these things are really popularized now because before the mallet station, uh, we had the mallet cap, but the mallet cap was very expensive and it was more of like a in-between uh, homemade products to a professional product. Um, so yeah, having this, I think having YouTube and stuff means that people tend to care more about electronic music, which is really great. And, and also, oh yeah, there's a lot of music now with, um, what is that word that people use? Oh yeah, marimba and tape, all that percussion and tape. And that tape thing has become like, you know, whatever electronic background music. I think that's really cool because you're integrating two different styles of music and it just adds some freshness um, to the to the bagel. I, I, I don't know what I'm saying, but yeah, it's just it's just really nice to have all these different influences. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna add on this topic. You're oh. talking about like compression and- Oh, sorry. So level tape. <laughs> 
So I left with tape. <laughs> I was just going to add on this topic, talking about compression and, and new music and all. Ksenia and I right now are doing this little project. My my former student that's that's finishing up his DMA in composition at Michigan State University has this uh, project where it's like a, how would you, not a graphic score, but a, how would you describe the score that we're doing, Ksenia? Yeah, King of Denmark ripoff. Yeah, oh, kind of King, King of, of Denmark. Denmark. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. Numbers and boxes, but yeah, but the whole thing is done. The whole thing's performed over Zoom, and like his ideas that certain things will get clipped and weirdly compressed, and and there's this. Uh, there's also uh, speaking of with tape. There's like a, a tape part that's playing the whole time as well. Um, so it's it's interesting. Um, I I you know I, I don't go home humming the melody of it or anything like that, but uh, it's it's I got my little wood blocks and stuff right over here for that piece. So yeah, it's interesting. That's cool that you can do that. That's um, I love how you called it a king of Denmark ripoff, but that's like serious shots. Why? Um, he said that. He said that. He was like, oh, oh he said that. Okay, it's okay. Okay, that feels so bad though. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's interesting that people have done. Oh yeah, Zoom too, as you mentioned. Then it's like Zoom, like Zoom music and doing stuff over like with with quick tracks, things like that. Just. So cool to see that it's so popularized, especially with the pandemic now. And Casey, I think the piece you bought for me, Little Things, that was one of the pieces that I wrote for this kind of situation, just playing yeah. um, two videos and stuff. So yeah, stuff like that is really popular. Well, and we need it right now. Uh, so it's, because uh, I've got, I, you know, it's, it's great here at GMU, we're allowed to kind of do whatever, whatever works um, as far as the students and, um, whether they want to be online or in person or whatever. And most of mine are in person, but a few want to be online. It's like, ah, oh, something like that would be like just perfect. So uh, we probably don't have quite enough time to have it um, learned this semester, but yeah, definitely want to do it, mm. do it soon. We, we have one last question, and I think we touched on a lot of this stuff already, but it's from our buddy Brandon Arve. Hey, Brandon. Um, he, uh, let's see, we, we kind of danced around this a lot, but I thought maybe just directly, like, what do you think the role of content creation in a standard percussion education is? Does it even belong? Do you think students should be required to make content as part of their studies? This is, yeah, this is again a very interesting, um, what do you call it, uh, dichotomy of whether or not you democratize the idea of making videos, right? Because I've always worried about this, like, because I've talked to Brandon about this and also I've spoken to other people about this, whether or not you should have like a content creation course, whether you should have like a workshop or something like that. And I think it is, it's dangerous to have like a too academic approach to making uh, videos because again it's something that anybody can do at any time and part of what makes these platforms so great and I want to point to TikTok as well which is a really great platform for inspiration because it's so spontaneous is that it really just comes from self-learning and it comes from trial and error and like the content is just what it is and I think if you tell people like I imagine if you did do a course on content creation in an academic formal setting it would be very much like this is how you use a camera this is how you make videos and it must have an intro statement and this and it's like you're putting everybody into the box um which is fine if you just want to get them started i, I would i would think if you are doing courses like this which is um, encouraging people and like giving them just the roots and getting them started that's fine but if it was like everybody at the end of the semester must make one 30 minute video that has exactly five call outs to people that i don't like 
and you must start beef with this person and this person, and that will get exactly one thousand. Like it's it becomes very like rigid, right? So um, I would encourage people to make these courses if it's just like here's like the, the starting tools. Now go and play, <laughs> go and do everything. Um, but if it was like you get assessed on how good your video editing is to the smallest frame, then uh, I'm not so sure. Um, but it is a good point that Brandon brings up that we should talk about. Uh, we should, and, and what Casey has been doing too, and I'm sure you guys have been doing as well, is like telling people it's okay to make videos on whatever you have and it's okay to, to express yourself through these mediums because it's fast becoming the norm. So I love that. I really love that. Yeah. I'm sure I know Brandon's heard me say this before because I think we've gotten this conversation a few times over the years, but it's like, yes, of course, it's really important. Should it be institutionalized? And like you said, Adam, sanctioned as like, as part of the class, you're required to do this, 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 and this. And part of me thinks like, no, you shouldn't. If you're paying to learn how to, you know, use, um, I don't know, use something that's so simple. Like, like, you know, if you're, if you're paying to learn how to build a basic website on like Wix or something like it's like hey those are designed so anyone can do it and what you might not realize is if you just like toyed around with it for a little while you're gonna figure it out so if you're paying like a ton of like college credit dollar for that <laughs> uh, it's not a good deal like you can do that on your own like you should you know and, and I think you know of course there's a lot of uh, problematic things in uh, in education like that it's like eh, a lot of this you could do on your own but uh, uh you know I don't know it's like we should try to really focus on the stuff that like they can't just go figure out on their own especially yeah that's why I, yeah credits. oh yes oh no sorry yeah um I just want to say because like you're talking about how um, people pay a lot of money for these courses and that reminded me of this question that people always say it's like what are some good courses you can start learning from to to learn how to get better reach on youtube and stuff and i'm like no 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 no, no. like like there's like academies or those like um like youtube youtube actually made one once called the youtube creator academy and it was just so lame it was like so a video must have a title and a thumbnail well that's something I would have <laughs> never thought of in a million years. Right. And the thumbnail must be engaging. Well, I guess if we make a thumbnail of nothing, that would fail. Oh, what a revelation. Like it's, it's just like you, you have to just try and just, just start and it's okay. Yeah, like you're saying, like if, if it's a free course, totally fine. If it's something that you can do in your own time, totally fine. If it's something that you need to pay $1,500 for and buy an ebook for, no, <laughs> no, so, don't do it. A little funny anecdote to share about this. When I first made my website, uh, I used Squarespace and I made like a really basic, like I would call it like, like, like a black and white website. It wasn't very good. And I like paid Squarespace, did that. The next day I was like, all right, I'm going to use a template. Like I'm going to kind of throw this away and start over. And my, I used a template and like the, the, information they had filled in it was for a, a fake thai restaurant but once i did that i i couldn't figure out how to change anything for 24 hours so my website was a, a thai restaurant that didn't exist <laughs> <laughs> and then i don't think that i have the greatest website in the world by any means it, it serves the purpose i need to but uh but yeah i i, I got it figured out but i was going to say with all this like talk of how do we insert this into academia I do think the one thing that I wish I could change, I think that students are given opportunities to perform like at studio class or what we call student recital here or a music at noon sort of event, whatever your university has. 
but I don't understand the point of having these awkward jury performances where the student has to walk in and and play for three panel members. Just it's it's so unrelated to what an actual performance is. I think a final project should be making a recording of what you do that semester. I think would be so so much more productive. And then at the end, you have your sort of souvenir from the semester that you can hang on to and use for grad school applications if it comes to that or you know whatever you don't you don't think playing juries gets you like practicing under pressure like if you did that you know every semester uh i especially sitting on this side of the table now what i realize is that if a student has a fantastic semester they never come in and bomb their jury and even if they did play a slightly lesser jury something like that I would still give them the credit for the work they had done throughout the semester. And likewise, I've never had a student bomb all semester and then just blow me away on the jury. Um, so like I said, I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't perform in person, like, but I think that actual performances like a studio class in front of an audio uh, audience of 10 to 20 people sure. is a lot more productive than, you know, because by the end of juries, like half the panel members have their feet up on the table reading a magazine. I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm not saying that's right, but that seems to be how it is at, at a lot of universities. To be clear, my colleagues don't do that, but I have seen that. <laughs> hey, um, man, thanks so much, Adam. This is really fun. It's always fun chatting with you and it's always fun whenever we cross paths. So yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And you guys are just doing such awesome work here. Like, and you're, you're so fun. Like, it's really fun to just talk with people who are just chill and, and great. And yeah, I hope you guys continue doing the great work that you do. Likewise. Yeah, man, you too. We're enjoying it. And yeah, everybody go find Adam Tan on YouTube and, and subscribe and follow if you haven't already. It's a, it's a really fun and really educational uh, uh, channel. So anyway, thanks, everybody. We'll catch you on 280. Bye-bye. Have a good one.